Listening to Steve Parrish talk was like kind of hilarious. Uh, first of all, the fact that it was a weed podcast because it's like it's so funny given like <laughs> what we've talked about lately on this yeah. podcast. It's such a funny contrast of like, do, do you think weed, man, it's just like the world is just like going to be a better place, right? Like, yeah. Absolutely, brother. <laughs> you know, right. It's like they're, yeah. they're really on that old school like hippie tip. Uh-huh. And um, Steve Parrish like definitely is. I mean, he's had a long, strange trip <laughs> and he's enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, he enjoys, you know, being high all the Steve time. Cannabis dispensary, Grizzly Peak. I'm looking at it now. Egyptian Kush. Yeah, a strain that honors the Grateful Dead family as Egyptian origins. I'm just looking at his face right now. Big Steve. All Big right. Steve, who was the the kind of, yeah, the roadie and Was person, given some mystery cannabis Garcia. seeds from the locals in Egypt. Those seeds were kept in his possession ever since, and a few seeds were also given to some close friends of the Grateful Dead family who grew a few small batches in the Me- Mendocino and Sonoma Hills over the years. This allowed Big Steve to carefully pick new seeds from batches with the best phenotypes from this unknown strain. All right. He's all about it. But, okay, but, like, Going back to the Egypt thing, I wasn't able to find a lot of writing about. I tried to look for more evidence of, I guess, Big Steve talked about how they were liaising with the State Department in the lead up to this concert to sort of make sure that, I don't know, that it jived well with the, you know, Camp David talks that were going on mm-hmm. at, the t- at the time, you know, which eventually were signed and it's just once again like the Grateful Dead kind of getting all up in like much more serious business than you would expect them to, to be caught mm-hmm. up in. Yeah. You know, like international rock and roll diplomacy and shit. And of course, doing it on a lunar eclipse. You know, there were also all of them were joking about how they were going to levitate the pyramids during the concert. And, you know, when people asked Jerry afterwards, like they didn't see the pyramids levitating, it's like, man, you just weren't paying attention. And so it's just like the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah. The weird Pentagon ritual. They, they love all to did. levitate things. Yes. Oh, they um, love levitating things. And they were all like dosed the fuck out on acid, which they brought with them. Um, obviously, but like the whole gang was there and in Egypt, uh, let's see all the merry pranksters, Ken Kesey, Owsley Stanley, you know, mountain girl, all of them, they were all there. And, um, and also the most interestingly, cause I'm sure if anybody was involved in really kind of, you know, greasing the gears and getting this to happen, it would have to be Bill Graham and Bill Graham He's an interesting guy. The more that's a name I always knew growing up because it was like Bill Graham Auditorium in like San Francisco. Like he had died as it happens. He died in a freak helicopter crash in the Bay Area, I think, in the early 90s. And Mm -hmm. I forgot if I mentioned this, but in John Fogarty's book, he did point out that it was right around that time that Bill Graham had sort of been enlisted to be like a mediator between John Fogarty and Saul Zantz over like settling all their financial disputes and shit. And Bill Graham was like really like sympathetic to John Fogarty and wanted to help him out. But then like his helicopter crashed into like a power and like into power wires and like exploded and like he just died. So then uh, (laughs) like that communication broke down. So it always made me wonder like, wow, like Bill, he backed the wrong rock star. They took him out. But also... I'm starting to realize that like Bill Graham might be a little bit of a sus lord himself because <laughs> Big yes. Steve had some interesting little comments about him, not necessarily about Egypt, though he was there on the ground with them, 
But he said, oh, yeah, Bill, he was the best, man. You know, back at the, back at the acid test, Bill Graham would just walk around with a clipboard, you know, like managing everything, man. Oh, he, was, he was great. And I'm like, great. what the fuck? <laughs> like, why was he walking around with a clipboard at the acid he was just, test? He was managing everything. He, he was, was managing, managing everything. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Yeah. And, you know, I was... think he's also the one who put on the human being, you know, in Golden Gate Park in 67 and was like a huge promoter of the entire San Francisco sound, basically. Like everybody, Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, and even Creedence Clearwater Revival, eventually. Like anybody that was anybody in the Bay Area was getting kind of promoted by Bill Graham. He really rose himself up to be this like impresario who was right at the right place at the right time. And despite being kind of older than the hippies themselves, was very hip to like what they were into. And I guess, but I didn't actually know that he was like at the acid tests. Like I didn't know exactly when he came into the picture, but apparently he was like managing them, which, which is okay. Um, I forget if he said, I think he even said like Bill was taking LSD with us. So like he was on acid too, but he was kind of like running everything. Uh, this um, is an interesting uh, Jerry Garcia testimony about uh, the Egypt concert. Uh, he starts off with, uh, oh wait, is this a Jerry Garcia testimony? It's like an article by someone else, but it's, oh, I see. I'm reading this off the Grateful Dead wiki. So like this okay. article then cuts into a Jerry Garcia quote where he says, we would have played here if the audience had been here or not. But the reality of it as it's unfolded is that the audience has become a much a part of the show as Egypt, the pyramids as the ideal. If you were to think of this whole thing as a piece of concept art rather than a performance, they are full participants. Uh, all right. Well, worth reading oh, anyway. Boy. But yeah, this <laughs> article goes into some of like the interesting sus, uh, components of this. So it's called A Venue for Recollection by Alan Trist. And it starts off with a quote by uh, Hamilton Eddy. The Grateful Dead themselves epitomizing Duke Ellington's definition of the excellent as being beyond category have south access to sources of information of the imagination which transcend western or eastern categories of history or culture. Their music asserts that we are liberated, not enslaved. All right. But such an acceptance of total awareness and their pilgrimage to the great pyramids of the Nile, the cradle of revealed cultures, is made with the understanding that men and women, many thousands of years ago, also aspired to voyage to the stars in search of a pure and universal humanity. Uh, ancient alien uh, vibes. But uh, in the course of the return flight from Cairo in the fall of 1878, uh, sorry, 1978, uh, Hamilton Eddy gave me this assessment of the Grateful Dead in Egypt. And though, like the event itself, he has disappeared sphinx-like beneath the sifting sands of time, his words have haunted me ever since. Thirty years later, it's time to tell the tale. A tale that begins, at least to our normal faculties of recollection, during the Dead's 1972 European tour. On a day off, I took Mountain Girl Phil. Who's Mountain Girl? Um, uh, she was the, the female vocalist. Okay, like, all right. Joined the band. Okay, kind of later yeah. On. Excuse yeah. me. Uh, I took Mountain Girl <laughs> Phil on, and man. Jerry Mountain on a ride. Girl. Yeah, to the ancient megaliths of Southwest England, visiting man-made Sidbury Hill, Avebury's megalithic circles, and Stonehenge. These intrepid voyagers were ever interested in patterns of the past and the meanings of the moment, and it occurred to them that the profound energies might be tapped and their music enhanced at ancient sites around the world. An idea was born. In London, we hung out with John Mitchell, whose books had reawakened a generation's interest in arcane perspectives on Earth energies. So this goes back kind of to our ley line discussion yeah. in an earlier Q&A, because this is exactly mm -hmm. the ley line guy. The old straight track beckoned. 
Later, manager John McIntyre would approach the record company with the idea of an archaeological mystery tour, but nothing came of it. We would have to bootstrap this gig. 1972 was also the year that President Anwar Sadat evicted the Soviet military advisors from Egypt, a gesture toward the West in the Cold War era that eventually opened the way geopolitically for the Giza concerts. Wait, r- re- wait, 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 run that back, run that back. 1972 was Soviet also mil- the year that President Anwar Sadat evicted the Soviet military advisors from Egypt, a gesture toward the West in the Cold War that eventually opened the way geopolitically for the Giza concerts. A parallel track was underway whose synchronous conclusion of the concerts would blow the minds of many ahead. Kesey's article, In Search of Secret Egypt, appeared in Rolling Stone. The Dead released Blues for Allah with its lyric references to the Middle East conflict. But it took, uh, like, the fucking, like, worst, most, like, fucking both sidesy like, shit. Or, like, even, like, pro-Israel. Anyway, but it took yeah. then-manager Richard Lawrence's private pilgrimage to Egypt to bring home the actual possibility of playing at the Great Pyramid. As Phil put it in Searching for the Sound, Richard saw a connection between the loose, laid-back lifestyle of the Egyptians fuck, and the spirit of the hate. It could be a hands-across-the-water event. Anyway, he was soon struck with a curiosity about how the music might be affected at the power points of ancient sites. Introduced to Egypt's mysteries by Jefferson's airplane's Marty Balin, Richard, a photographer, returned with evidence that an open-air concert theater adjoined the Sphinx and the Three Pyramids of Giza Plateau as a floodlit backdrop. A light bulb went off in my head. The band should play here. I went home and presented them with my idea. The band responded with an enthusiastic, let's do it, and the excitement began. The Dead's organization had never attempted anything on this scale before, and before long, everyone was involved with planning and scheming. In the fall of 1977, the band appointed an Egypt committee, Phil, Richard, and myself. Planning for a scouting trip to Cairo began. Ironically, the first hurdle was local, for Bill Graham wanted to promote the concert himself. This caused the famous Egypt or bus controversy between Mickey and Bill about the right approach, since traditional methods of concert promotion were not going to work. We would have to bootstrap this gig. Again, repeating this, this weird phrase. Okay. A period of diplomatic firewalking began. From this was born the Egypt Committee's new monkier, the Mids. We became the men in dark suits, because to uh, accomplish our goal, we had to dress the part. All right, so they dressed up like MIBs. At this time, Sadat <laughs> made a bold and unprecedented visit to Israel and addressed the Egyptian people in the Israel Neset with words of reconciliation and peace. A magical glimmer of hope illuminated a troubled world, and into its crack of light, the mids took their dream. Literally, their MI, MIBs. Uh, donning our suits, Yo, we went so to the US... It's so fucking funny they're called the mids, by the way, because yeah, they're like the most and they're mid fucking mid. Fucking mid. Yeah, ever. they're incredibly mid. Um... Donning our suits, we first, yeah, like, it's like MIB's butt. Donning our suits, we went to the U.S. State Department to be vetted for fitness as cultural ambassadors. We threw a party at a fancy D.C. hotel for state staffers who later wired associates in Egypt. The Grateful Dead are cool. Do what you can to help. Imagine that (laughs) event. Just imagine, like, what happened at that fancy D.C. hotel with those state staffers. And the Grateful Dead. <laughs> like, you know, it, like, what was it? Uh, Tungsten Park. Like, Ibohi Park is there. Like, I, I'm just picturing the weirdest milieu imaginable. It just goes on. It needs to be. It, it's worth John Malone, our Middle East consultant, introduced us to the Egyptian ambassador. In a memorable exchange, an authentic understanding was reached between Ashraf Gorbel and Phil about the reasons for the concert. Phil said, I am interested in how the different places we play affect our music, and I can think of no greater venues than the Great Pyramid. On to Cairo went the mids. 
Cairo is a teeming city of the old world, where camels, donkeys, antique buses, and limousines all vie for space in the thoroughfares, and Richard, Phil, and I bustled about its dens and hotel lobbies, trying to match our pacing with that of the sanctioning power, Saad Aldine, Minister of Culture. It took a week, but in the end we could send our telegram back home. Attention Grateful Dead, ex-Pyramid Caravansary, Mission Report, 21st March, 1978, uh, uh, Cairo, to count them open air concert at Great Pyramid Sphinx Theater in Lower Egypt confirm. Repeat. Confirmed for September 14th and 15th. Steering committee landing SFO Thursday with sign repeat. Signed agreement. Yes, yes. Mids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they sent a sus letter. Before returning, Mids hired a car whose driver took us to Upper Egypt at a speed that would have been reckless had it not matched the way energies are funneled to the narrow valley of the Nile. Richard introduces to his friend, Abdul Ati, boatman at Luxor. Sailing across the Valley of Kings, resting place of the pharaohs, I had an epiphany of the four elements of the ancient world. <laughs> banded in my field, literally, like, not a concept in ancient <laughs> Egypt, but banded in my field were fire, water, earth, and air, blue, green, brown, and azure, where fire consisted of the illuminated energies of the Nile's banks. Flame was not in this picture, and this was revelation indeed. The concerts were six months away. We made two more advancing trips to Egypt, meeting with the Egyptian Department of Antiquities, who managed the Giza Sound and Light Theater, with the secretary, Madame Jahan Sadat, uh, or her secretary to her, to whose favorite charity, Wafa Wal Amal, Faith and Hope Society. Half the concert proceeds would be donated. Uh, the other half going to the Department of Antiquities. Richard arranged with the WHO for the loan of their PA system and recording truck and its transportation to Cairo from London. This would turn out to be a mini-adventure of its own, with customs clearance delayed by Alexander's Port Authority, but the trucks arrived for the concerts in the nick of time. Meanwhile, Mickey was hot in the cultural ambassador's trail. He invited Hamza al-Din to open the shows. Hamza, Sudanese virtuoso of the stringed oud and mentor to Mickey's tar drum expertise, arranged for the Nubian Youth Choir, a group of singers, dancers, and hand clappers, to join him. A seamless bridge to the Grateful Dead's music was painstakingly worked out in the studio. Mickey planned his own post-concert recording odyssey to Hamza's village far south of the Nile Cataracts. Things were falling into place. Blah, blah, blah. Bill Graham arranged a breakfast for us at a Bedouin tent. We feasted, rode horses, and had a great time. <laughs> so, yeah, they did their whole thing. They met Anwar Sadat's first lady. Uh, mm -hmm. She was at the concert. Okay, wow. It looked like quite a party. I found an article. Yeah, the youth with a lot of Cairo mingled with the deadheads who had converged on Giza from the U.S. and Europe. Bill Kreutzman observed that by the third night, the locals had picked up the distinctive dance, even as he, who had injured a hand shortly before leaving the U.S., beat out the rhythms, noting that in the land of the limbless, a one-handed drummer is king. Interesting. The Bedouin agreed, for soon their silhouettes could be seen moving in sync on the sand. Uh, this is a good paragraph. <laughs> the concerts play with time and space, as Egypt itself is timeless. The mass of the Great Pyramid warped local dimensions. The vast, ancient structures in which the music of the Grateful Dead attempted to come into phase and alignment hosted us in silent grandeur. We tried to draw them into the music by using the King's Chamber deep inside the Great Pyramid as an echo chamber. Dan Healy set up a radio link from a PA tower to the corner of the Great Pyramid, and from there, John Cutler had run a 2,000-foot length of wire up through the ascending passage in the Grand Gallery to a speaker in the King's Chamber. A microphone picked up the sound and sent the feedback to the radio relay and thence to Healy's mixing console. Damn. Yeah. Really into some Aleister Crowley shit here. I wonder if he, Kenneth Anger... Like, I feel like Kenneth Anger would have wanted to be here. Yeah, I'm sure right. he would have. This Why didn't like, Kenneth Anger film this? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they did. There is a concert you can find on YouTube. There is concert footage. 
you know, there they are in front of the Sphinx and the pyramid and everything. Lots of black and white pictures. I guess uh, Adrian Root uh, was a photographer that ended up tagging along and covering It's crazy it that they coincided like with the actual days of the Camp David peace talks starting. Were they literally at the same time? I think so. It helped that the full moon was in total eclipse, a cosmic event that uh, unforeseen when the mids booked the concert date six months before. What do you mean unforeseen? But such ent- entrainment, all right, was the order of the day for another event was taking place. The Camp David peace talks between Begin and Sadat, which had uh, been in secret negotiation mediated by President Jimmy Carter. We're even at that moment reaching agreement on the following day, September 17th, the historic peace accord between Israel and Egypt was signed. To have found ourselves simultaneously in tune with cosmic and worldly events of the Great Pyramid was a humbling experience. Yeah, literally, they were <laughs> playing on they were playing on September 15th and 16th, and the Camp David Accords were signed on September 17th, right after. So, like, they were playing while they were hashing out. Yeah. The Accords at Camp David during like a lunar Deliberately eclipse. trying to do like a magical ritual. Yeah, it reminds me of like who like the TM guy. A bunch of people have like, you know, if like if 1% of the world meditates at the same time one day, like when they have yeah. those worldwide days of meditation where they're going to like shift the consciousness of the world by everybody meditating all at once. Like the Grateful Dead's kind of gunning for something similar. Like they're conducting a kind of a musical mind war on... The situation, almost a mind war, you know, they're attacking the problem. They're not pointing fingers, you know, at Israel, especially. Um, This is funny. This is about their radio relay that they were running uh, between the Great Pyramid uh, trying to, you know, get the Healy's mixing console. Throughout Mm. the first set of September 16th, I traveled back and forth between these locations facilitating communications. Courtney Pollock, original Grateful Dead tie-dyist, owned in the sarcophagus. Uh, all right. Ultimately, we failed to make the connections work, and the Great Pyramid remained a silent witness. Some said that the genie had bamboozled us. Uh, I bet. <laughs> I bet it did. Um, he did the Claxton method. Yeah, a djinn yeah. definitely bamboozled them. It's probably a good djinn. It's one of those Muslim djinn that was like. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. 